I'm going to read our passage for today, Luke 23, 33. This is where we're going to be today. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. God, right now we pray for your presence to come into this place. We invite you in, Lord. We pray you would speak to us. We thank you for the goodness that you have shown Northern Hills all of these years. Thank you for the goodness you've shown to my family in being here. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. I pray every person in here would just truly get a fresh taste of your goodness even today. How good you really are, Jesus. And so we pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Let me hear a good amen, Northern Hills. Amen, amen. All right, all right. Woo. You guys ready today? You ready to get after it? Second service, awake, ready to go? If we have not met yet, my name uh, is Brian, the pastor here at Northern Hills. Just so good to have you guys in the room. I know we got spring breakers online still. We'll see you guys next week, all right? Don't play too much hooky, all right? You can't do those spring breaks forever, but um, just got a little housekeeping. Real quick, guys, this is a very important matter of prayer. This is a very serious situation going on at church right now. We have a March Madness bracket among the staff at this moment. And I have been in dead last ever since this thing started. But as of this morning, I checked, just so you know, I am out of last place, and Pastor John is at the rock bottom of the list. Now, this is why this is important. On the Northern Hills staff, it ain't about winning. It's about not losing, okay? Because we have a massive punishment for the person who gets last, and it will involve a public shaming on a Sunday, just so you know. So you will know. So please be praying for Pastor John to stay at the bottom. I think it would be the best thing for him to stay there. Um, but other little housekeeping, a little bit more serious matters. Uh, we are officially, guys, closing in on Easter. And I know, you know, if you've been around church, you know this is kind of the Super Bowl for the church. This is a big holiday for us. And this is really one of two times for a lot of people when they might even be relatively open to crossing the thre threshold of a church, right? We call these the Creasters, all right? Christmas and Easter, that's when you do church. And um, all jokes aside, I really want to plant the seed in some of our minds where if you're going to be in town and you're planning on being here for Easter, I want you to start praying to God, just asking him, hey, are there any family members, friends, people in my life that you would challenge me to invite and make the ask? And sometimes all it takes is the ask, guys. And sometimes I know that can be a terrifying prospect, you know, coming out of church. I promise you this, we are planning on this being an incredible experience, something that anybody can come into, obviously giving the hope of Jesus. So you never know what God can do. But just be praying about that the next couple weeks. Does that sound like a deal? Got a deal? Okay, I see some nods. I appreciate that. So as we get into it, we'll be in Luke 23. For those of you guys who got the Bibles, you can get ahead of me. I once heard this quote, somebody say, wherever you go in the world, two icons people will always recognize, Jesus and Coca-Cola. Now, I don't know how true that really is, but here's one thing I do know. Everybody knows about Jesus on some level, for the most part. Like, that, he has name recognition. And some people have super strong opinions on one side or the other, and a lot of people just don't really care that much. They're kind of indifferent. And yet, can we just acknowledge something right now? Jesus is a strange character. He's a strange character. And here's what I mean by this. You've got a first century Jewish carpenter, just blue-collar worker, who holds no political positions at any point in time. He doesn't, like, take power over any nations. He doesn't have massive amounts of wealth. Like, there's nothing really going for this guy. And yet, he is the most famous person 
ever in human history. There's not even like a close second place. Not only that, two billion people believe this guy is God. Okay, can we just say that's a little strange right now? That, that's a strange thing on some level. And we're weeks away from Easter. And I mean, this is obviously the foundational holiday for Christians. I mean, everything kind of flows out of this. I just thought it'd be appropriate to kind of get ourselves prepared for even Easter itself and take the next couple weeks to look at this person, Jesus, more closely, and particularly one event. If there's one event that really defines the person, Jesus, it's actually really his crucifixion on some level. I mean, we have a lot of writing and conversation around what happened on the last day of Jesus' life. And interestingly, a lot of people were actually crucified, especially at this time. And it was intended to pretty much wipe that person off of the face of existence. Like, they're meant to never be talked about again. And even Jesus' crucifixion was intended for him never to be talked about again. That didn't work out so well, did it? As we are sitting here in Colorado, still talking about this guy 2,000 days later. So here's the deal. We're starting a new series today called Famous Last Words. And we are actually looking at real quotes from the person of Jesus as he was living his last moments on the cross. And there's something powerful about people's last words. And so we're going to look at this. And some of you guys, I know you're coming in. You've been doing the Jesus thing for a long time. You'd call yourself a Christian and all that. I hope the next couple weeks are just a moment to really increase your appreciation of who this person really is. But I know there's a good number of us, too, where you're still exploring. You're on the fence. You're not totally convinced. I'm hoping maybe if you'd commit to these next couple weeks, you'll see something about this Jesus guy that maybe even changes your mind about who he may really be and what he's all about. So... We're going to get after it right here, guys. Luke 23. I'm going to start in verse 33. This is what it says. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Now, we got to stop right there. How do you even get to this moment in your life when you're being nailed to a cross? I mean, you've really had to do some stuff to get to this place, all right? That is not a good day. And so let's do like a quick Wikipedia run-through of Jesus' life real quick, just so we can really appreciate this moment. You know, you reverse about 33 years, and Jesus is born in pretty humble circumstances, right? We always talk about the manger. I mean, it's essentially a stable or a barn. There's not a lot of fanfare. And yet, at Jesus' birth, there are some elements that truly show something is going on. We see like angels appearing. There's some prophecies. Even rulers at that time hear these rumors of this new king being born, and they're worried that even their own power is being threatened by this. Jesus makes one little cameo appearance when he's 12, and then the dude just disappears for literally the first 30 years of his life. Like, he's just gone. He's not even in the picture. And then, right around 30 years old, just blows up on the scene. Starts healing people, teaching thousands of people, working miracles. I mean, it's just ridiculous. People are like, who is this guy? And it starts to get so intense that the religious powers of the day start to get a little threatened by this. Because Jesus is calling out some of their hypocrisy, some of the legalistic practices, and they're like, this guy might undermine this entire setup we've got. It gets to such a boiling point that a conspiracy starts to form. And these religious leaders develop a plot to have Jesus killed. And so one of Jesus' own friends sell him out for some cash, they take Jesus in the middle of the night, so there's not too much drama politically about it. Jesus is condemned to death by Pilate, this governor, because he's just trying to save political face. He just doesn't want any drama. And Jesus then is tortured. The Bible says flogged, severely beaten. Most guys would not survive that. If that wasn't bad enough, they then place a giant wooden beam on his back that he needs to carry 
down this road so heavy that Jesus falls three different times trying to carry this thing. And if that is not humiliating enough, they get to this place that they said was called the skull, place of crucifixion. The very wood that Jesus had to carry is the wood they use to nail him to, and he would ultimately die there as a public spectacle for anybody, as a message. Hey, this is what happens when you try and threaten what we've got in place. And this is the moment we find Jesus in. And you think of all the things somebody could say right here in this moment, all of the commentary, what would even come out of us, and these are the words we have from Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, if you have heard these words before, you're familiar with this story, do not let your familiarity with it remove the power of this moment. Jesus is pleading for the forgiveness of the very people that are wrongly torturing and killing him. Just think of all the stuff Jesus could have said right here. I mean, he could have just been pleading to God for himself, like, God, help me. Get me off this thing. I need a hookup desperately right now. He could have even just been threatening these guys. You imagine what Jesus could have said? He said, um, this is a really bad idea for you guys. Just so you know, I'm God, and this is going to end really badly for you if you're the ones who kill God, okay? It's going to hurt. Or he could have even just begging these guys for mercy, like, I'm so sorry, guys. I didn't mean it. I'll stop saying ridiculous stuff. Just please get me off this thing. I mean, just think of all this stuff. And yet, the more these guys drive the nails into his hands, the more grace has flown out of them. And Jesus says, forgive them. Forgive them. Now, I bet if we took a poll in this room, or even just the average person in America, if you said, hey, do you think forgiveness is a good idea? Most people would say, yeah, it actually is. You should forgive. You know, it releases the load off you. It kind of healed the relationship. It's a good thing to do. You have those rare, crazy people that are like, no, revenge is the only way. But, okay, we're not talking about your sister-in-law or anything like that right now or whatever. But even though we'd say it's a good thing to do, why is it such a hard thing to do? Why is it so complicated and messy sometimes? Because here's the thing. It's one thing to forgive somebody who cuts you off in traffic. Although, I'm not going to lie, I have cut people off in tra traffic and thought I was going to get killed sometimes. I'm like, I'm about to get murdered. There ain't much forgiveness even, things like that. But seriously, for the real stuff, you guys know what I'm talking about. It's really hard to forgive when something has severely done damage to your life. Like cratered you. It makes this thing really, really complicated. What do you do when it's like a devastating event in your life? And actually, even though, just to give you guys a chance to know a little bit of my story some more, um, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. Are there any Chicago people in the house? No? No love? Zero people online. Zero, not a single person. Somebody online help me out, okay? No love here in the room. So I'm, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. I had a pretty typical childhood experience, really, for the most part. You know, two parents. I had a sister. We didn't have a dog because my parents did not love us that much. There was a limit to the love. No dogs. Guinea pigs. That's guinea pigs, okay? I love my children. I got them a dog, okay? But no dog as a kid. Now, again, things are pretty typical. And honestly, I, I'm really blessed. I had so many blessings that I'm grateful for. I, I don't have a memory of us ever, like, missing a meal for any reason. I was exposed to Jesus from a young age. There's a lot to be grateful for. And yet, it was right around seven years old when the dynamic in my family started to shift. And there was just tension that started coming in. My parents' relationship was getting really strained. There were just dynamics that even as a seven-year-old, I couldn't articulate, but it was extremely uncomfortable. I, I'm leaving out a lot of detail, okay? I don't think it's necessary. And when I was nine years old, things got so bad that my parents actually sat my sister and I down. And we're like, we just have to address this. 
And I still remember, some of you guys have these types of memories. They are just burned into your consciousness, you know, like it happened yesterday. My dad sits us all down at the table, and he says, hey, kids, I just feel like we got to talk about what's been going on. You guys just need to know your dad has developed a drinking problem. My sister just starts crying. And as the younger brother, my sister cries. I'm like, well, I guess I need to be crying too then. I, I literally don't know what's going on right now. And it was just this, it was just this really heavy moment. And, and yet at the same time, the transparency kind of made it feel like, well, maybe we're turning a corner. You know, we're opening up, we're being honest about what's going on. And so it kind of felt like there was a hopeful moment there. And to be really honest with you guys, things just got a lot worse and kept going downhill to the point where by the time I was in middle school, my parents' marriage for all intents and purposes was totally defunct and my relationship with my dad was completely strained. And it just was a real difficult situation to be in. I leave for college and uh, move out and I still remember my first semester, my mom calls me on the phone and she's like, hey, I just wanna let you know I've been working on the paperwork, um, but the divorce from your dad is officially final, it's done. I'm telling you guys, the emotions I felt at the moment were just pure relief. I was just like, thank you. Like, it's over. The drama, this, the ridiculousness, all of the dynamics. Like, we can be done with this right now. And even after that moment, I maintained um, a relationship with her dad, but I'll tell you, it was as minimal as it possibly could have been. You know, the obligatory call on Father's Day, a birthday, or something like that. And to be totally honest with you guys, the last time I have even seen my own father in person was at my wedding, which was almost 10 years ago. Forgiveness is hard. It's really complicated. It's easy to say, oh, just forgive and hug it out and just move on. But anybody who's been through something in this room, you know it is never that simple. There are so many other things at play. One of the reasons I think this forgiveness thing gets so complicated is because we honestly misunderstand what it really is. And so I want to make sure we get some clarity on what are we even talking about? When Jesus is saying, forgive them from the cross, what is he even talking about? What is he saying? So let's get some clarity here. What is forgiveness not? Let's just make sure we get some understanding here. Forgiveness is not. Let's go through a couple things real quick. First off, it's not minimizing. You can also call this excusing. Sometimes we're tempted to say, well, it's not a big deal. I probably would have done the same thing in, the, in that situation. All these things, we just want to minimize it so it doesn't, maybe it removes a little bit of the sting. But God never asks us to make light of traumatic experiences or hard situations. He really doesn't. So it's not minimizing. It's actually, it's not reconciling either. Some people wrongly think that in order for forgiveness to take place, that total reconciliation in the relationship needs to happen. That's a two-player game. You can actually forgive just on your own, and you don't always have to wait for the entire relationship to be restored, but that's a misunderstanding people have. It's actually also, it's not forgetting. You know what I hate when people say? They say, oh, for, forgive and forget. They're like, it's in the Bible. And I'm like, no, it's not. You should read it sometime. <laughs> it's like second lies 213. It ain't true, all right? If something happened to you, I'm going to tell you right now, you ain't forgetting it, all right? It doesn't mean the memory can't be healed, but you're not forgetting it, all right? Not that. It's not weakness either. You know, some of the strong personalities, strong-willed people, you're like, well, I can't let them off the hook. I'm not going to be the weak one on this side. I got the moral high ground. It ain't weakness. And this is probably the most important one for me that people need to understand. Forgiveness is not a feeling. So many times we think, well, 
I still have so much pain associated with that person, that situation. I can't even bring myself to forgive. I'm not ready for that yet. And actually, that is not even a necessary requirement either. So that's what it's not. So what is forgiveness then? What are we talking about? What does Jesus even mean when he's saying it? Before Jesus gets to this crucifixion moment, he's teaching his disciples at one point, and he uses a story to illustrate how God works, particularly when it comes to forgiveness. So this is Matthew 18. I'm starting in verse 13, or 23. This is what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. So Jesus is saying, this is how the kingdom of heaven operates. This is how God works, okay? And he's like, here's the story so you can understand how this works. This dude is in debt. 10,000 bags of gold. Jesus is using an extreme amount just to illustrate a point. For some of you, just think of your school loans right now, okay? This is what we're talking about. Ridiculous sums of money, okay? Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So back this time, you can't declare bankruptcy. You just go into indentured servitude. It's over for you. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Not a realistic offer at all. There's no way this guy could pay it back. He's just pleading for mercy right now. The servant's master took pity on him, forgave the debt, and let him go. No payment. No retribution. This king absorbs an unimaginable loss. And he lets this guy go free like it never happened. So what is forgiveness? To forgive is to cancel the debt. That's what it is. You decide they don't owe me anymore. Here's the situation for all of us. If somebody wrongs you, something has been taken from you. For some of us, it's our dignity, innocence, our ability to trust, emotional stability. There, there's so many things. Something was taken from you unjustly, and there is a debt in the relationship. You are owed something. And Jesus is saying, when you forgive, you are canceling that debt that you are owed. And for a lot of us, there are tons of situations where there is no way the debt can be paid. Some of us know, you can't undo that decision. Like, it's, it's been made. There's no going back. For some of us, the relationship will never be the same. There's no amount of money or time, even in some situations. In some cases, there's not even a chance to go back to the person. And so Jesus, he adds no disclaimers. There's no exception clauses. He just says, you cancel the debt. Now, when I went off to college and, you know, my parents divorced and it was just a massive relief, that was the season when I started to realize the debt that my father had accumulated in our relationship. And I had to just come and face the fact that I would never have a normal father-son relationship. That I would never be able to go back and relive the childhood. There's no do-overs. And to be totally straight with you guys, it really created a lot of resentment and bitterness. Like real anger. But at the same time, I was really starting to seriously read the Bible. And I read these stories. And I started to understand how important forgiveness really was. And so I did so many times say, okay, I forgive my dad. I'd even pray about it and stuff. And I would, you know, go through those motions. But to be totally honest with you guys, the bitterness and resentment would just keep coming back. And it would just feel like I was on this endless cycle. 
of just anger and frustration and trying to overcome some of these feelings. And this is, I think, the struggle for a lot of us. A minor offense, you get over it, right? Just move on. It's not even worth it. But when your life has been cratered by something, you just can't forgive and forget. You just can't move on from it. You can't get over it. And this is why Jesus' next words are so important. You guys got to understand, Jesus never wastes a word. There is eternal wisdom flowing out of this guy, even when he's being killed. And he says, forgive them. But then he adds this next phrase, which is kind of interesting. He says, they do not know what they are doing. Now, I read that, I'm like, Jesus, do you not see what's happening right here? These guys know exactly what they're doing. They're killing you. That, I mean, they're crucifying you. I mean, these soldiers are like, yeah, just another political reject. We'll just kill them off. The religious guys are like, okay, we'll be over with this Jesus freak guy, and we can move on with our lives of manipulating people, you know, and the whole system. And yet Jesus is saying something profound here. He's like, on one level, they do understand what they're doing, but on another level, they fundamentally misunderstand the magnitude of what is happening right here that these guys are killing God himself. The creator of the universe is being nailed to a cross in this moment. And what I found kind of interesting about that is Jesus isn't letting him off the hook when he says that. He doesn't say, oh, here's the thing. I'm going to be back in three days. I'll see you guys on Sunday anyways. This ain't a big deal. It doesn't even hurt that bad. I am God. Like, he doesn't even say any of that stuff. He still sees these guys as guilty. He's like, God, you need to forgive them. And their situation is bad enough where Jesus is more concerned about praying for these people than even himself in this moment. So what does Jesus see about these guys' situation that he finds it so important to be pleading on their behalf to God? And what's so critical to catch here is Jesus is not just speaking about these guys in particular. When he says they don't know what they're doing, he's talking about us too. We don't know what we're doing. There is a magnitude of our situation that we do not appreciate. You know, does anybody here do dumb stuff? I do a lot of dumb stuff. I, I, trust me, as we get to know each other more, I got plenty of stories about my dumb things, right? <laughs> Just stupid stuff. It's funny, though, because sometimes when you do dumb stuff, you kind of, like, brush it off a little bit. You're like, yeah, you know, that's what my grandpa was like. Or I'm Italian. You know, that's what we do. Us Italians. You know, like, we have all the excuses for it. It's just one of my personality things. You just got to deal with it. We have all the stuff we say about why we do dumb stuff. And yet, the Bible has totally different terminology about this. The Bible talks about this thing called sin. Now, I know this is not a favorite word, but it is something you just have to face. If you're going to have any seriousness about Jesus or the Bible, you've got to face this word because it talks about this situation we're in. And the Bible talks about this thing called sin, that it is so heinous that really it completely fundamentally separates us from God in a substantial way. It's that significant. It's so bad that the only appropriate justice, the Bible says, is death for us. Like, God is totally justified in that, and every single one of us is infected with this. And I know sometimes it's tempting, because you're like, well, Brian, I actually, I'm doing pretty good. The 401k is pretty padded pretty well. I'm doing all right. My neighbor, he's crazy. He should be here right now. He needs this way more than I do. Like, it's easy to kind of be like, I'm doing okay. I'm not terrible. I'm not perfect, but, you know, I'm all right. And yet, here's the critical piece. It's all about what you're comparing yourself with, all right? Your neighbor might be crazy, but you put yourself up against God? a perfect, holy, eternal creator of the universe? I'm going to tell you right now, you ain't got no moral high ground to stand on at all, all right? That is a tough comparison to make. And when Jesus says they don't know what they're doing, we fundamentally misunderstand the magnitude of our situation 
and the seriousness of our sin and the dynamic we stand at before God. Now, here's the thing. If the sermon just ended there, if I said, and that's how that works, let's pray, have a great Sunday, <laughs> that'd be a tough deal, right? That would not be fun to be a Christian if that's how the story ended right there. Even though this is the situation, they fundamentally misunderstand the seriousness of their sin, and we do too. What does Jesus say? Forgive them. Forgive them. He could have called down fire from heaven, and instead, he's begging for these people. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't name a single person when he says this. You know, you could expect him maybe to start listing off names. God, I forgive Judas. He got this whole thing started when he sold me out. Forgive these religious leaders. I know they're crazy. Forgive these soldiers who are putting the nails in my hand. Like, there's, forgive all those people who are speaking against me in my whole life. He doesn't name a single individual person. And I think that's an important point because Jesus is including all of them. But I think on some level, Jesus is even, even including us. You see, my sin put Jesus on that cross. Your sin put Jesus on that cross. Every single one of our misdeeds was another swing of the hammer on that nail right into Jesus' hands and feet. If you were the only person who ever lived, Jesus still would have had to go to that cross. And he would have. I had an interesting experience um, when I was in college. I'm getting, you know, serious about my faith and all this stuff. And I know sometimes there's this misconception that maybe pastors, you think we just kind of float around in heaven Monday through Friday and we're just kind of talking to Jesus face to face. And, you know, we just have all these special holy experiences. Let me tell you, my life is very bland for the most part, okay? Uh, I'm trying to deal with my kids. I'm cleaning up my dog's poop in the backyard. It's very normal, okay? That's my life. And yet I did have one pretty interesting defining moment in college. I'm praying to God and I've never really had anything like this before or since, for a moment, God gave me a real glimpse and taste of the reality of my sin, actually, and just opened up my eyes and heart to it. And I know, I'm just telling you, I'm a normal guy, right? So I don't want to make this sound too extreme. It was so overwhelming, it literally knocked me off my feet and put me into the fetal position on my dorm floor. It was so overwhelming. And in that moment, I just realized how paralyzing and hopeless this sin thing really was. I was like, Oh my goodness, God, I got no hope if this thing is all on me. I mean, it was so overwhelming. And yet, that entire process was one of the most powerful experiences in my life because I experienced what Paul says here right in Colossians 2.13. Look what he says. He's talking about Jesus here. Here, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Interesting. This debt we stand before God, real spiritual debt which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Man, that's a good word right there. That is a good word. You get this? Every single one of us, we owed a price we couldn't pay. We had an impossible debt, just like that guy in the story. And yet, on the cross, Jesus had all of the debt nailed to himself. He took all of it. Your entire account has been cleared. You got no debt. If you're in Jesus right now, you are free and clear. Not only that, you're rich. You are ridiculous rich right now if you are with Jesus. It's kind of crazy. You are a precious child of God. He has opened up the doors to heaven for you. He is working in your life right now. And funny enough, when I had that moment on the floor in my college room dorm, I had this experience where for the, truly the first time really in my life, I felt this weight lifted. 
Like, it truly was like the debt had been pulled off all of that weight. It was completely transformative. Jesus talked about that story of the servant, right? You guys remember talking about that? I actually did not read you the whole story. That was only the first part. Jesus finishes it out. And look what he says, talking about this dynamic of forgiveness. This is verse 28 in Matthew 18. But when that servant went out, the one who got forgiven the debt, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Just not a lot of money, not a big deal. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. About to get real, folks. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, which we know was an impossible amount. This is the moral of the story. Jesus brings the point home here. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That's some real talk from Jesus right there. He ain't holding no punches. You guys have to understand this. This is foundational for this whole conversation. There is a direct correlation between your personal experience of God's forgiveness and your ability to give it to other people. Those two things are directly connected. If you are forgiving somebody, you are absorbing a debt. You are taking on a loss. You're canceling it. And yet, no one will ever owe you as much as you owed Jesus. I don't care how bad the thing was. It is like a couple coins compared to the massive piles of stuff that you owe God. And this is what Jesus is trying to help us understand. You're never going to be able to generously offer forgiveness to somebody else until you have truly experienced and appreciated it in your own life. Jesus, he's not asking you to minimize the situation. He's not saying, hey, just forgive and forget. Let's just move on. He's not saying, you're right. You need to wait until you feel better about the situation. Then you do it. None of that. He's saying, you need to understand what I have really done for you and what kind of debt you have been forgiven. And that will start to open the door for you to really give it to others. That's the key. Now, I also know, as important as that is, so many of us in here, we got some real stuff. I'm going to tell you guys, I've only been on staff three months. I've heard some of your guys' stuff. Sometimes I leave some of these counseling meetings, I'm like, dang, there's a lot to work on here. This is going to be a couple more sessions, just so you know, guys. Like, it's real stuff. There's real stuff in this church because we're real people. And so, so many times, this forgiveness piece, this is not just a moment in time. This is not just a snapshot. You're not going to be able to quickly move on, but you can start moving down this process of forgiveness. You can really start to experience it. And so... How do you actually start to do this? Some of you guys really need this. What does it look like to practically start taking some steps towards forgiving whatever the situation is? There's three things I just want to hit real quick. First thing, pray for them. 
Pray for them. Jesus, Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, here's one thing I am certain of. You cannot continue to harbor bitterness and resentment towards somebody that you're genuinely praying for on a regular basis. You just can't. And Jesus knows this. So he's saying every time you pray for them, you are doing spiritual surgery on your own heart, and you will start to see your feelings towards that person change. So I really have to ask some of you guys, have you actually truly been praying for those people that have hurt you the most? Like, have you made it a point to put them on your list every single day if you have to? Jesus says, you need to be praying for them. The second thing, though, bless them. Bless them. This is Paul, Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, these are powerful words, blessing and cursing. When we say curse, what we're talking about is actually speaking destruction into somebody's life. So this is through toxic venting, gossip, complaining. And Paul's just saying, you are never going to find healing by spewing venom all over that person in the entire situation. So he says, you need to bless. And blessing is on the other side of it. When you bless, you're actually speaking good into somebody's life, whether it's personally, privately, publicly, whatever it is. And there's something about speaking words of blessing into somebody's life and even in the entire dynamic that will actually start to shift your experience of it, your feelings towards it, and maybe the entire situation itself. So I gotta ask you, how are you talking about these people, that person, the situation? Whether it's to them or behind the back, what are the words you're using? But this last one is critical too. Do good to them. In the same chapter from Paul, he says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, you look at the burning coals on the head thing, you're like, Okay, Paul, I wasn't exactly thinking that, but I guess we can do that. He's using an illusion. He's saying... When you bring good into somebody's life that has truly harmed you, you are going to put them in a position where they will be confronted with the own goodness of God and the power of forgiveness. And it will be like burning coals on their conscience. He's talking about spiritual work in somebody's heart. He's saying your best way of waging war on the evil in your own life and the damage that's been done is to bring good into it. And it will sometimes even transform that person's own heart and mind about you and what happened. You need to do good to them. So I, I've been telling you guys about my story. You know, I leave for college. I'm just relieved that the entire situation, you know, from my childhood is clearing up. And it was actually in college when I, I did start to make a discipline of praying for my father. I was like, this is just something I have to do. He may be the single person I've prayed for more than anybody else. I definitely put him up there. And as I was praying for him, I started just this practice of forgiving. I decided in my mind, you know, the way I talk to and about my dad needs to change. And so I'm going to start using words of blessing and I go on this journey. But it was actually just a couple months ago when there was kind of a defining moment in this entire journey. Uh, around November this last year, I'm just going for a run and I'm listening to a book called The Intentional Father. It's a parenting book, which by the way, if you are a dad in this room that has a boy in your house still, you have to read the book. Required reading for you, The Intentional Father. You're not, you have to read the book, trust me. It'll change your life. And so at one point in this book, the, 
author who's a pastor, he said, you need to write a letter to your dad. Doesn't matter how good or bad the relationship was, you take the opportunity just to take a moment to thank and appreciate the things from that relationship that were good. There's always something good and redeemable. But he said, on the other side, you need to take a moment to clearly articulate your forgiveness to your dad for any of the pain or harm that was done in the relationship. And I remember listening to that thinking, man, that's a great concept. I love that idea. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I was, I was like, great idea. No, not doing it. <laughs> and as God would have it, you know, this is how only God works. I end up at a conference a few days later in Dallas. Who do you think the speaker was at the conference? The author of the book. Yes, this tiny little gathering of pastors. And I'm like, okay, you know, how many pastors are in this country? And this guy shows up in the freaking same room as me um, right after I read his book. And so I actually started having a conversation with him. And it became very clear, you know, as I was just kind of opening up to him about some of the stuff. And it was like, okay, I need to do this. And so on that flight back, and um, a couple days later, I took some time to write my dad a letter. And it was the first time in my entire life I had clearly communicated to my dad directly that I had forgiven him for all of this stuff. And actually, it was just about two weeks later when I got a card in the mail from my father. And I'll tell you guys, this is the most heartfelt thing I've ever gotten from my own dad in my entire life. And I did ask for his permission to even share some of this in the last few days, but he, he, he opened up and said, Brian, I've been dealing with forgiveness issues with a lot of people. I want to apologize for some of the things that happened. I wish I knew then what I know now. I have very few nice memories from my own father. To tell you guys the truth, I don't know anything about my dad's dad. I didn't even know what his name was until a few months ago when one of my uncles told me. And he shared just so many things about just what's been going on in his heart and even how he feels about me and our relationship. And Dad, I know you've actually been watching these services for the last couple weeks and months. I, I, I want to let you know, Dad, that I do love you. And I do appreciate the things you have done in my life. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for you. And I, I do hope to actually see you soon. I really do. I know we're all coming from different places with this topic. I know for some of you guys, you're like, Brian, it is too soon. There are so many layers. I just want to give some of you guys this challenge. For some of you guys, where this message is really pertinent right now. Jesus did not wait for some opportune time to start forgiving. He was doing it as the nails were being drilled into his hands and feet. And I'm telling you, do not wait until you think you're going to have some magic inspiration or all the feelings are going to get healed out or you just feel like it's the right time. The right time is right now to start down the journey of forgiveness and to step into the process. And I want to challenge some of you guys to make the decision today. You know what? I need to start praying for them every day if I have to. I am going to pray genuinely for them. I'm going to start changing the way I talk about that whole thing. I'm going to start using words of blessing and even as painful as it may be and as hard as it is for me to even imagine, I am going to look for some opportunities to do some good to that person within reason and what's appropriate. Some of you guys, maybe you need to write a letter. Maybe you've never actually had that moment of clarity to articulate real forgiveness 
in that situation. But here's what I do know. As you really start to appreciate and embrace and understand the unbelievable forgiveness of Jesus in your life, that he canceled your whole debt, you are really going to be able to say genuinely, God, not only have you forgiven me, I know you want to forgive them, and I do too. Let's pray. God, I am just in awe that you would, at the moment, your worst moment, Lord, you would be pleading for forgiveness. Not bringing down fire, not bringing down judgment, forgiveness, Lord. And we are just so grateful that you are a God of love and grace. And I know for some of us in this room, it's hard to imagine you as a loving father. Sometimes we're tempted to see you as some cruel dictator or tyrant. I pray you flip our thinking even right now that we would see the grace flowing out of Jesus even from the cross. And I want to pray for my brothers and sisters right now, especially the ones that are struggling with a forgiveness issue in their life. There's still severe pain. There's history. There's stuff they're trying to work through. I pray, Lord, that you would overflow your debt-forgiving forgiveness in their own life, that they would truly be overwhelmed by the amazing grace you have shown them. But I also pray, Lord, that you would give us the conviction to step into the process of forgiveness, to start taking the steps. Because Jesus, even you did it from a cross. And so I pray you allow us to do it in whatever situations you call us to. And we know, Lord, that's going to glorify you, bring healing to us. And it's really going to change the entire dynamic of that experience. So I pray for all of us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Thanks for checking out this week's message. If you'd like to get involved here at Northern Hills, check out our website at inhills.org or download the Northern Hills app. We hope to see you again soon.